Greetings, everyone. This is Peter Diarger with episode number 28, also the last episode of the podcast Y2K and Autobiography. I stopped producing the episodes about a year ago. Why? Because the story had been told and there wasn't really any reason to continue rehashing the past. I did promise that if anything new came up worthy of discussing, I would have one last episode. I think we're there. On December 30th, HBO is going to launch the documentary Time Bomb Y2K by Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. I work closely with them on the documentary, and without a doubt, it is the best, most honest, direct, unbiased documentary you're going to see on Y2K. Uh, when I did this, I wanted to focus only on the technical stuff. And I did that to good effect, I think. However, upon reflection and watching their documentary, I think I did you a disservice. The Y2K story wasn't only about the technology aspect. As much as that was my only focus, it became a cultural, social thing. I mean, there's even Y2K fashion, if you can believe it. And for those of you who know me, you will not be surprised to hear that no one in the Y2K fashion community has ever contacted me for my thoughts. Without any further ado, I'd like to start a discussion with the two producers and directors of this documentary and stay tuned to the right to the end, because at the end, they're going to talk a little bit about what it's like to create the type of document documentary that they've put together. So join us for the last episode of Y2K and Autobiography. Okay, everybody. Well, today we have something different. I promised when the podcast sort of came to its natural close that I would come on again and do something else if there was a reason to do so. It's been more than a year since the podcast ended, and there was no reason to do another Y2K podcast at all. However, during the intervening time, there have been some different, let's say, Y2K documentaries out there. And I've been involved with practically all of them in one way, shape, or form. One of the ones I appreciated the most because it was as objective as you can get. Basically, they just did found footage. They used archival material to talk about and remind us about what Y2K was all about. The two individuals are Brian Becker and Marley McDonald. And their, their documentary is entitled Time Bomb Y2K. Very, very close to a number of the different books and things that happened during the years. So... I would like uh, first Brian to introduce himself very, very quickly. And then Marley, if you can do the same, and then we'll start with some questions about why in God's name did you do a documentary? <laughs> so Brian, kick it off first, please. Sure. Uh, long time listener, first time caller, uh, <laughs> co-director of Time Bomb Y2K and also the producer of the film. Yeah, and uh, I'm Marley McDonald. I'm the other co-director and editor of Time Bomb Y2K. My first question to you is, how old are you? And it's relevant to the discussion. How old are you? 
Classic first question. We get this a lot as the first question as we've been showing the movie around. I am 30 years old, which means I was seven years old on New Year's Eve 1999. Okay, so in a way, Y2K is is just a word. It's almost a historical event for you. Definitely, yeah. Brian? Uh, I'm 32, so I was nine years old for Y2K. We both remember it. We both remember exactly where we were and what we were doing. And for me, I definitely remember the tension and anticipation in the air at the time. And I think that for both of us to kind of have this emotional remembrance of the event, but not necessarily a super fact-based, reporting-based remembrance of the event was a really kind of fertile place for us to devote the past three years of our lives to amassing 700 hours of footage and speaking to over 150 experts and reading countless news articles and really nailing down exactly what Y2K was uh, to so many people. Yeah, for, yeah. Me, for me, it's interesting because I did the podcast specifically for people like yourself, people who would hear about Y2K almost secondhand. It was a historical event. And the perception of it has been colored so much by the media. I found it important to put down my version of it. And that's what the Y2K and autobiography was all about, was to give my perspective because I knew it would be lost. Literally, some of the people who were involved in Y2K had passed on by the time I decided to do the podcast. Ed Yorton, for example, would have been a great contributor to the podcast, except he's no longer with us. And this happened several times when I was putting the podcast together. So I knew the documentaries would start up. When did you guys contact me? I can't re exactly remember. Was it just before COVID or after? It was right after. I think it was probably fall of 2020 that we first contacted you. Okay. Still when we were kind of in it fully. Yeah. Yeah. Before and wait, uh, Peter, when did you start the podcast? I started that in nine, no, 2019 is when I started to think about the podcast. And it was simply because I knew that on the 20-year anniversary of Y2K, the media would fire up again. And they mm -hmm. did. I hadn't heard from the media in general for almost a decade. One or two odd phone calls, but nothing major. And then shortly after starting putting the podcast together, the phone started to ring. I wouldn't say it was ringing off the hook like it was in the old days, but it was certainly beginning to ring. And the discussion was all the same. We want to do a retrospective on 2020. <laughs> and then it was a 2020 retrospective, which is you know, predictable. You guys are predictable. I'll say that. <laughs> now... <laughs> You you don't know anything about it, really. You know some of the tension and stuff because you were young at the time and observant and you're watching the parents and you're you know watching some news, but you're not watching a tremendous amount at that age. Prior to starting on it, what prompted you to start even looking into Y2K as a possible topic for the type of work that you do? 
Yeah, so I I have a background. This is a directorial debut for both of us. This is the first film we've directed, but we both have a background in archival filmmaking. For me specifically, I've worked as an archival producer, an archival researcher, meaning I'm the guy who in a historic documentary finds and digitizes sometimes and licenses all of the footage. And so I was working on a film a couple of years ago and inevitably when you work on archival films, you always see a ton of footage completely irrelevant in archives to the actual project you're working on. And I came across a news story about a family in the American South making final preparations for New Year's Eve, 1999. And it just struck me like, here's this major event from my childhood that I remember was completely unavoidable at that time that we all went through together that we haven't given much thought to, that I definitely haven't thought about much since it passed. Um, and so Marley and I worked together a few years ago on a project called Spaceship Earth and left that project knowing that we wanted to make a documentary together that we directed and had a long running G-chat of movie ideas ranging from honestly absolute garbage to some that are pretty good. And so I G-chatted this idea over to Marley. Yeah. And so when when we came across this, when Brian came across this clip and sent it to me, this was the summer of 2020. And so, you know, when you Google Y2K, the first images that come up are people lined around the block at gun stores and empty grocery store shelves. And we immediately recognized it as looking pretty familiar to what we were experiencing then. And the further we dug into it, the more we realized that not only were these images familiar, but these sort of the ways that these American subcultures were pervading the media landscape, both then and now were really resonant. And we saw that as an opportunity to sort of explore the way that America goes through crisis, um, both in the media and very personally. And the way that we, we saw it as an opportunity to sort of explore the way that we relate to technology and to each other. How did you pick your story? How did you pick your approach to talking about the subject? Yeah, I think from the beginning, we, you know, we did a lot of research. Um, and from the start, we kind of realized that we wanted to build the movie in the same way that we saw Y2K happening in the world in the 90s. So starting with the technical problem and really unpacking that and explaining that, then watching as that radiates out into this sort of media phenomenon, and then seeing the ways that subcultures pick up on this and use it to espouse their worldview. And then we knew we had to get to New Year's Eve midnight. We knew that was the end of the film. Um, so we knew we wanted to sort of loosely structure it around the chronology of the Y2K problem. Yeah, and I think from the jump, we always thought it would be a worthwhile formal endeavor to try to make this using only archival. Um, it's what we know how to do. It's what we like to do. And we thought that there were such obvious parallels between then and now that we didn't necessarily need talking heads 
breaking up the immersiveness of the film, connecting it from the late 90s to the present because the parallels were so obvious and because we, you know, we, we trust audiences to to figure those things out. We trust that if audiences hear you talk about the far right in 1999 on CBC, that they'll be able to make that connection to the present in their own heads. Yeah, I'll just add that a huge reason why we were even able to do it all archival is because we came across you and your work and you were there from the very beginning to the very end. And so we knew that we had you as sort of this narrator who we could keep coming back to and checking in on the the reality of the problem as things kind of spiral out of control that you you would center the film again and yeah. again. And we also have to shout out podcast guest uh, John Koskinen as another person who we had in a congressional hearing or on a news report or on a, a Y2K task force report almost every single day for two years straight. So we didn't go into it saying to ourselves, okay, we're going to make a film with Peter Diager, John Koskinen in it. We came into it with no preconceived notion of the story and just spent a ton of time with each other with no funding, just watching footage and seeing what and who spoke to us. And that is what formed the the bedrock of the film. Yeah, the story tells itself. I mean, it told itself in its own way. I, it started 1978 and it, it moved in, you know, fits and spurts towards the future. Different players came in and came out and you sort of, spoke to it, it it got out of hand i mean y2k coverage literally escaped us mm -hmm. and you you had some reservations some concerns about how i would see the documentary at the end we discussed that several times and i had likewise the same concerns I've been involved with a number of different documentaries and they say, you know, we're going to do this straight. We're going to do it straight. And then they focus entirely on the, the preppers and the survivalists and running for the hills and all the rest. And, you know, the end of the world as we know it, Teotwaki, the way we used to call it back then. <laughs> and I realized after watching documentary several times that part of my problem is with the media itself the way it works and it's not that anyone's at fault it's that this is how media works mm. is that the the topic that's going to get the headlines is going to be the one they write mm -hmm. and if that is someone said planes might fall out of the sky that's what they're going to run with and our challenge our being myself and others in the it world our whole focus was simply on one particular audience, the technical audience, the people who could fix this. The rest of it was noise to us. And it is incredibly frustrating for me to see someone running for the hills on your <laughs> documentary saying, I'm doing this because Peter Diager said so. Mm -hmm. And I'm going, I never did, ever. But I know that's what the media said I did. And therefore, it becomes its own reality. And I think yeah. the only way to do this type of story is the way you did it, was with the archival material. Uh, 
you you came up here for a couple of days. Why and what was that like? Oh, well, we I mean, we came up a couple times since, you know, we first spoke to you. The first time I came to your basement where you're recording, <laughs> where this podcast is being recorded, I saw the podcast set up. Um and I came up to do archival research and to talk to you. Um, we'd been speaking with you since almost, not since the inception of the project. You don't want to call, you know, we don't want to call Peter de Jager when we have no idea about the topic. We gave ourselves a few months, a handful of initial conversations with other people before we decided, okay, we now feel prepared to talk to, to Peter ourselves. Um so that was in 2020, and I guess probably about a year later, you know, once the project was in full swing, I thought it was important not just to, you know, go to your your basement to see your files, to see the photos you have, some of those made it into the film, but also just to meet in person and have two days of talking to you, because I think even though we didn't feature newly shot interviews in the film, we did have relationships with all of the main people in it. Um, you know, we talked to Koskinen for months, even the people who went off the grid we've spoken with and been to some of their houses. And, and so I thought it was important to fully, outside of all the podcast episodes that we listened to while making the film, be able to go back and forth with you and to talk about you know, like as I was finding photos or files, uh, it's just useful to be able to get your take on your own archival and then be able to incorporate those thoughts into the film in, in the same way that we tried to incorporate John Koskinen's perspective or even, you know, Candace Turner's perspective who lives on a farm in Missouri. It was important that we had you know, people gave us their material and we felt a duty to respect the trust that they put in us for, for donating their material. Yeah. Um, so I, yeah, I said, yeah. I scanned photos for days. Uh, <laughs> I, you gave me a Peter de Jager doll that was created <laughs> in the late nineties as a parting gift and also a, a CD that had kind of a rap song that said, Jaeger to Jaeger, what are we gonna do? Uh, but it did contain an interview on that CD. There was a good interview you did as like a bonus track on that CD that was very useful to us actually. The song uh, did not make it into the cut. But it was worth quite a few laughs, I say. <laughs> this is an amazing song. Good office inspiration, if nothing else. We yeah, all, I just we had all types of gigaws coming out of the woodwork. We had yeah. CDs. We had the UK British Telecom series, BT British Telecom. They had a phone card with Y two K on it, uh, with me in a cartoon figure uh, on the phone card. We we had all types of stuff. My wife has just put a bag downstairs in the basement last week of all the old T shirts. Uh, Y2K t-shirt. She says, what do you want to do with this stuff? And I'm I'm almost like a hoarder, I guess. I don't want to throw it out. 
It's Send us one. <laughs> oh, you have the whole bag if you want. In fact, anybody who comes, anybody who wants a T-shirt, send me an email. And I'll get a T-shirt to you from Y2K. I'm uh, writing my email right now. I want one. Yeah, of there's about 20 or <laughs> I have 20 or 30 of them. I'm happy to send them out. I'll sign them <laughs> if anybody wants. Okay. Who else did you speak to? You mentioned John Koskinen. Who else did you discuss, uh, talk about uh, Y2K with? And what were the key ideas that you gleaned from them? Were the, the, the major themes that you picked up from them? I have two two more thoughts on the last question. We also came back for Hot Docs Film Festival, where you came to our premiere. So that felt yep. like an amazing homecoming after spending two days working around the clock with you to be able to show the film to, I think, a sold out audience at the, the Ted Rogers Theater. Yep. Um, so that was amazing. And the second follow up thought is, you know, the, the lifelike uh, doll of you that was created sat on our office couch until we moved out of the office so thanks again yeah um, I actually have a, a follow-up just of what Brian was saying um, just about the approach of archival filmmakers and you know this recognition that when you're telling an archival story you're telling real people's stories and so beyond how much you know we got from our conversations that we had together and this idea that we're using your archival you know we need to get it right we just have this um this sort of innate recognition that what we're doing is telling someone's history and that we owe it to them to get it right and so these conversations that we had with most of the major characters of our films were about making sure that their voice was incorporated into the process of making the film. Yeah. I've done That's more than 2000 media interviews over the years. And there's about a half a dozen documentaries or movies or whatever that I've been involved with. And one of the reasons that you're, you're on the tail end of the podcast, it, it uses the first one that came in without bias you honestly didn't cleave to one side or the other side of the story. It wasn't about whether or not Y2K was real or not, or how big it was or not, or whether it was a real threat or not. You basically just shone a light onto and held a mirror up to what was happening during that time period with all its warts and carbuncles because it was, <laughs> There was crazy stuff going on. I mean, either the media exchanges, some of them were just nuts. And as much as they frustrate me then and frustrate me now, still to this day, that's what it was. Yeah. You know, that yeah, is think, what people believed. I think to your point about trying to, you know, examine the way that the media works in and of itself in an all archival film is really hard because you don't have that outside voice coming in and saying, this is what the media was doing. You just have the news to keep showing. Um, and so that was a really difficult part of our film, trying to point people to recognizing what the media was doing without sort of that outside voice. Um, and one of the ways I think that we, we saw kind of wrapping up that story is at the end of the film, 
you know, there's this moment where it's like, well, now that Y2K is over, some people will start to wake up and see that there's an election on the horizon. And it's sort of this in other news, we're going to now just beat you over the head with the next media cycle <laughs> phenomenon, you know? So I think that um, that became a, a huge challenge in the edit of trying to to show what was happening in the media, but also have viewers understand that this was like, um, that there was like a meta context to it that we wanted people to take away from it. Yeah, I think you succeeded. I, I really did. Now back to the, who else did you speak to and what were the major themes? Yeah, uh, so John Koskinen, who we've mentioned, Bill Clinton's hand appointed Y2K czar. Yeah. Um, great helper to the film, let us work with his archives at Duke University, um, came to the DC premiere of the film and reunited the senior most members of our the United States' Y2K task force who hadn't seen each other in years at a reception beforehand. So if nothing else, we're happy that the film uh, led to that. Um, I think Koskinen, you know, true to how we presented in the, in the movie, spoke to the importance of reiterating a clear and balanced message, even if it wasn't the most thrilling, but just being kind of a steady voice that relayed information from the experts working on the problem to the public. Um, we spoke with Candace Turner, who in the film calls herself Farmer Jane, I went to her farm where she still lives in Sarcoxy, Missouri. She, you know, also to her credit, I mean, she's a very intelligent woman who became very invested with Y2K, which was a real threat. And then, you know, in a very intense media landscape, made the decision to move to a farm and live with her family essentially off the grid. Uh, it was very tough for her when nothing happened, but I think we had real empathy for her kind of going through that process and felt the need to respect her story too. Uh, she still lives on that farm and she has a YouTube channel now right. uh, and is loving life. <laughs> um, so, you know, even though the end of the world didn't happen, she still kind of found some of, I think, what she was looking for in, in deciding to live on that farm with her family. Um, there are hundreds of computer programmers, maybe not hundreds, around 50 programmers who we spoke with, not all of whom are in the film, but it was important for us to get that story right. We spoke yeah. with Scott Olmsted, who took his family off the grid in California and spoke with me a little about uh, voting machines over email which i won't get into too much further um uh, margaret anderson margaret anderson and bruce uh, oh yeah bruce mcconnell yeah, bruce mcconnell they were they were great just of the programmers that we talked to their perspective was super valuable just being very kind of deep in the actual fix of the problem and one of the things that they really revealed to us is how much Y2K was this moment where programmers started talking to each other um, across companies and creating systems to, to battle this problem. Uh, and that was a very cool thing that, because we kind of immediately saw that there was this, this connection point 
that Y2K revealed our interconnection and our dependence on one another and people that we didn't even know. But that scaled from just the everyday person who takes the subway and has no idea how the subway runs to the programmers talking to each other and, and creating new ways to, to rewrite the code and sharing it with each other. Um, that was a very cool lesson to me. Also, it Susan. First, it was the first time the internet was used to work on a single project. We yeah. had the mail list. We had 90,000 people on the mail list. Mm -hmm. And basically, someone would ask a question. And then someone of the 89,999 other readers would respond. Uh, every day, we used to get four to 600 emails going back and forth out to 90,000 people. And it was the early days of the internet and how these things worked. For those listening who were a part of that mail list, I'm sure you remember the mail storm that we had. We had one of those silly situations where you're sending out to 90,000 people. Someone has a, I'm away from my desk, I'm on holidays, the responder message that goes back to the 90,000. <laughs> within a couple of seconds, we had hundreds of thousands of emails landing up in people's desks. I had to fly back from a trip to get on the machine and basically kick it in the head to get it to stop doing what it was doing. Uh, this was the early days of the internet. And for the first time, we were using it on a single project. Mm -hmm. So the notion that the IT community came together is one that is shared by practically everybody who worked on the project. It was the first time we'd really spoken to other companies doing exactly the same thing. How do you fix this stupid problem? And mm -hmm. it was a success from that point as well. Yeah, that's something that that definitely interested us, sort of this first first crisis of the internet age um, and how the internet was used, both in terms of connecting people to find solutions and sort of the first seeds of planting disinformation on the internet, which, which played a huge role in some of our characters' lives of where they were getting information and reading blogs, creating their own blogs. Um, and yeah, kind of examining how early that started in internet culture, both the positive and the, the negative. Yeah, I just I just spoke with someone who's making a film about disinformation on on social media who who talked to me about how it's it's you know the first time we can look to social you know social people on social media can make the news and it's it's not checked and it was like no this has been happening since PCs more than doubled yeah. in individuals' homes in the late 90s and for the first time you could make news yourself and not have it be fact-checked and people can intentionally or inadvertently turn to you as a source of news and then learn from your website no matter if you're a computer programmer with 40 years of experience or someone who read a book they purchased at Borders and decided that you wanted to make a blog for the first time. Um, and so that was another parallel between then and now that felt interesting to probe was these kind of early days of the internet where anyone for the first time could post on a forum or post to, you know, a GeoCities website and have it be read by thousands and thousands of people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, even I mean, even part of our research, you know, I read an amazing book about early computers and the relationship to like religion um, called Technosis. And we talked to the author of that book. So like our research really expanded beyond just the Y2K problem to try and get just what people were talking about and the zeitgeist of that moment with this early Internet history, just, you know, burgeoning. With misinformation. How did you guys do fact checking on the stuff that you were reading? Because like you said, you're reading tons of material and it wasn't all consistent. How did you yeah, do that? it was a lot of synthesizing between all of the people we were talking to. Um, it's it's hard to to find a fact, <laughs> you know, um, so it was about talking to the people on the inside of the problem and hearing what they had to say. And then and then hearing someone verify that from over here, you know, and trying to create the bigger picture out of all of these separate individuals and places we were getting information from. How many people in total did you speak to? I think the outreach sheet for archival is at around 800. And that's institutions and individuals. So that includes like, you know, ABC. And then the outreach sheet for research calls is around 150. Okay, I'm just I'm just curious as to your process. Now you're telling a story. We all know it, how it ends. <laughs> how do you do that? <laughs> <laughs> that is a question we asked ourselves. <laughs> every single day for a long time yeah <laughs> and then one day you've done it but no marley you should you should talk about this as the editor well <laughs> yeah it was it was extremely challenging i mean there was certainly a a month-long period on the project where i was like what are we doing how are we gonna get there how is this going to mean anything everyone in the theater knows the world didn't end but I think we seeded in that this story was about a lot more than just the potential of the world ending. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a way to examine all of these themes that we've laid out earlier in this conversation. Um, I think, you know, at a certain point, we realized that our theme was really about this interconnectivity of people. And so we wanted to make sure that that New Year's Eve sort of symbolized that, this event, this sort of epic event in humanity where everyone globally was celebrating this one night and sort of used that as a metaphor for what Y2K was revealing, just how connected we were. And so we were able to sort of shift the movie into that territory to let that moment exist on a sort of very emotional plane of watching these celebrations all over the world. And I also think we had to constantly remind ourselves that even though we and audiences know that the world doesn't end, the people in the film don't know that. And so it goes back to what you were saying before about kind of the this the story spiraling out of out of control and out of out of technical circles into the mainstream. And so we really wanted to capture that feeling and replicate it on screen and our our assistant editor Katie Ann Gonzalez actually named these montages we use as as spirals her word I mean our mm -hmm. word now but she coined it initially and so we wanted to kind of capture this feeling of spiraling up until New Year's Eve when we open it up to the the, the world at large 
and we've actually heard from you know audiences at festivals that people were like people go yeah it's crazy like i actually during the countdown like felt this tension that like maybe it could end mm -hmm. and we kind of can't believe it but we also <laughs> can because that's what we worked you know extremely hard on in edit for a year straight we know yeah. that you you on new year's eve knew that the world wasn't going to end so i was absolutely okay i knew that we would have some problems and we did i knew that we'd continue to have problems y2k related problems over the next couple of decades and we have but at the stroke of midnight i was on a plane as you know over gander uh, flying towards London, uh, United Airlines flight, can't remember the number, but at the stroke midnight, we were 30,000 feet up in the air. And there was absolutely no tension, no expectation. Oh my God, what if I was wrong? Da, 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 da. There was none of that. I knew we would have some issues. I didn't realize how vehement the pushback from the media would be when nothing happened. I mean, it's, it's almost as if we let them down by not allowing at least something to blow up. <laughs> and John Koskinen and I have joked on several occasions, we should have let something fail. We should have left something major fail. We're both kidding, of course. However, <laughs> it, would have put, it would have put to end all of this nonsense that it was all for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, did it get out of hand? Yes, it did. Were we a part of that? Yes, we were. But there was no other way to make sure that the people who needed to hear it heard it. Mm -hmm. IT, IT people needed to hear this stuff. Yeah. And this idea that when nothing happened, of course, just so such human nature to say, well, must not have been anything to begin with. Right. <laughs> like that is That is something that we came up against very early in our research and realizing that this was a very real problem that people put time and effort and money into and solved. And we wanted to tell that story in our film so that when people walk away, they really have the full picture of Y2K. I think, you know, talking, talking, one of the great kind of parts of making this film is that everyone remembers Y2K Everyone who lived through it has some sort of memory of either New Year's Eve 99 or kind of what was going on with Y2K. But there's a deep sort of uncertainty about what it actually was. And so that was sort of our mission by starting with the technical problem to really explain what was going on and how how it came to be and how it came to be solved. Yeah. And I think we also one quick note, footage of you on that plane, New Year's Eve the the dream clip that evaded us we looked for it, oh. it doesn't exist but that's the one thing we wanted more than almost anything for months i looked at your your hour by hour schedule for that day when i was <laughs> in that basement we talked to every media person you talked to on 1231 there's no no one with a camera which is classic no one with a camera went on that plane um the other thing i'll say to marley's point is I think we always came to this story with with a sort of like hopeful lens or or saw Y2K as this not doom and gloom countdown where it was the end of the world, but instead sort of looked at it as this moment where we actually invested in a problem and the public sector and private sector 
cooperated and we actually got out ahead of it and managed to solve it before the deadline with all the zeros happened. And so I think that was sort of what was unique in our approach was not just seeing this as a doom and gloom story. I mean, yes, there are dark elements that were just taking root then that we now see so clearly every day. But as this rare instance of cooperation and investment in something that, that was abstract and that wasn't that hadn't arrived yet. In many ways, it was a huge success story. IT is not known for delivering things on time, period. It's not what we do. We're no good at it. Uh, it is inconceivable that we had as many projects as we did come in on time. We're not good at prioritizing what we need to do. We ended up with whole new terminologies for how to work on this. We talked about um, a triage, you know, corporate triage, which systems must we get right? Which ones can fail if they want? We don't care. Which ones we'll get to if we can? Uh, we talked about mission critical systems. We became very, very focused on exactly how to run a very, very large, complicated, detailed, expensive, time-consuming, nitpicking and boring project. And we succeeded. It, it is astounding. And you're right. It wasn't doom and gloom. It was a success story. Mm -hmm. and I'll throw the question back to you. Ha did you succeed in your goals? In other words, what has the audience responses been to you, commentary about it? And are you happy with what you've accomplished? Yeah, I, I think we, we both are. We're very proud of the film we made. Um, and we feel that we were able to put in sort of all of these ideas that we've discussed today actually into the film. I think first and foremost, by setting this limitation of using all archival, which is a very challenging thing to do, um, we feel that, I mean, we did successfully make an all archival film and that was our goal from the very start. And so in that way, we were able to tell the story that we wanted to tell through all archival and um, that was a success. But also I think that the film carries with it both this, this sort of warning and this hopefulness about the future. And I think that audiences are definitely picking that up and responding to that. Yeah, to second Marley, you know, sometimes you'll hear a filmmaker talk about a project they made who goes, uh, like it's you know it turned out okay I think we both really love this movie and we both have loved taking it on the festival trail up to this point um, and talking to audiences that's the beauty of playing festivals is you get to field questions and, and meet people afterwards and it's been heartening to hear from you know it feels like every time we show the film there's someone at least one person who worked on the Y2K problem who thanks us afterwards, even, and Marley, I haven't talked to you about this, but we just showed the film in Amsterdam. And of course there was someone who worked in a hospital in my home state of New Jersey, who was all the way out in Amsterdam and happened to come to the movie that day, who said, I worked around the clock on that. That was the biggest thing for us. Mm -hmm. uh, thank you so much. Nobody remembers that this was a big deal and we did work on it. And so that's been great, you know, from our first screening up until our most recent to talk to people who who really were on the ground every day working on it because 
of course we we were not marley's yeah. dad worked at circuit city so that's closer <laughs> than, than i was to the problem but uh you know that's yeah. been really heartening i think the other great joy of taking it on the festival trail has been meeting people who didn't live through y2k right because they exist as weird as that is to and they can drive to the theater themselves which is weird to wrap your head around but um you know they've been like i had no idea about this and i talked to my parents afterwards and they said yeah like we bought some extra food ahead of time or you know no we thought that was complete bs and so it's been nice that people have left with kind of questions and, and that's all we can really hope for is that the audience leaves the theater with with better questions about y2k and better questions about our present and kind of the the factors and the forces that have led to today between them between yeah them there's there's a quote out there about the y2k problem the computer problem um that it was comically simple and incredibly complex and that's something we realized right from the start. And when you're pitching a movie saying you're going to go in and explain this, this distinct code error and go back through the history of computing to try and really explain what this technical problem, I think people raise an eyebrow. How are you going to do that entertain in an entertaining way in a film? And I think we successfully did that. And people walk away from the movie with a real understanding of that technical problem. Yeah. But we do acknowledge also, like, it's still, it's something that surprised us a little bit, but also makes total sense that Y2K is still a vessel, even in 2023, Yeah, where you take your worldview to the theater, and for some, like, Y2K is still, people still dump their worldview into it and mm -hmm. leave the film with the very specific notion of what y2k was for like we think it's a great opening of this issue between then and now and even historically about how we deal with technology how we relate to community how we relate to each other and for some i think a rare few it's still kind of you know they say the same thing now that they did back then um, yeah and so that's been interesting as well yeah, one other thing I'll add is this really interesting thing happened with the film, which was when we premiered it in March, a lot of people would bring up COVID as a sort of like parallel, you know, examining what happened in 2020 with what happened in Y2K. And as the summer went on, people started raising their hands and making connections with AI and the threat of AI and like this technology. And so we think it's really interesting that this movie sort of functions as this vessel for just the way we handle crisis. And whatever the next thing is, I'm sure people will be able to bring Y2K into that story and see the parallels. I think we're gonna be studying Y2K and how it evolved for the next couple of hundred years. I mean, especially we're going to have opportunity to go through the whole thing again as mm -hmm. we get along. Uh, 2100 is a, well, is it a leap year or isn't it a leap year? <laughs> and it's not a leap year. And if you've got a computer program running 76 years from now, uh, 
it's going to have a leap year problem in 2100. Uh, we're not going to get away from these things. We're not going to get away from them at all. Now, you start out on the Y2K project right in the start. And then at the end of it, you've come out. The project is done. When is it being released on HBO? December, December 30th. 30th. <laughs> and what will, you, what will you be doing Oops. December 30th? Texting Ooh. all of our friends to watch the movie. <laughs> watch the movie. Yeah, like like so hopefully a friend has a a screening, screening party. party. Yeah. We also should we should hype. If you're going to do a screening party, you have to start it at exactly the time that when it's uh, midnight on the movie, it's midnight in real life. Ah, good. Yes, good. When point. does midnight? Ha it's seventy three minutes in or something. Yeah, yeah figure it out. Good. Figure it out. I'll tell you uh, what. I'll join you. <laughs> if you want to do a watch party, I'll join you with it. We would maybe take you up on that. That could yeah. be that could be interesting. We should also add it's playing um in theaters in New York December 15th to 21st. Okay. With a lot of interesting hosts of QAs and partnerships and events around it. And then uh LA. December 12th for send me all that info send okay. me all the info and when I do the marketing for this I'll make sure it's there uh, for everybody yeah. to see at the end of all this you went into Y2K with a certain image of what Y2K was all about and it was enough of an image in the vision to say to prompt you to say I'm going to spend a good portion of my life over the next couple of years to try and put this documentary together at the end of it, when it's all done, you've gotten your accolades, you're you're on HBO, you've gotten great reviews on it, uh, you've got my blessings. What is Y2K to you now? And I'd like both of you to answer it. I suspect the, the responses will be a little bit different, but what is it to you now after all of this? I think for me, Y2K is a moment, an important moment in our history that revealed our dependence on computerized systems that we were not in control of. And I think that became the most like fascinating exploration path for me, examining this moment that we had to face the reality that we were dependent on so many people that we don't even know. And that I think became, you know, it happened in this moment and then somehow got buried again in the history and then when something like COVID comes along and we're faced with these sort of failures of our infrastructure, it's revealed again. And it's like at these crisis points, it, we have to come face to face with the reality that like we are not in total control of our lives like we like to believe. And we are, in fact, deeply connected to the rest of the world and to each other. Yeah, I think I mean, perhaps this is a result of spending um hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of days talking about Y2K with Marley. Uh, I have a, I, I completely agree. And that is a large part of what Y2K represents to me as well. Um, it also now, you know, having lived through the past 23 years since Y2K passed, um, you know, it feels like almost a dry run for all of the end of the world scenarios that we kind of grew up with and came of age with. It was this moment where we looked into ourselves, but also towards each other. 
against this backdrop of rapidly changing technologies and thought about kind of who we turn to, whether it's to ourselves or whether it's to our communities, our community groups, our professional colleagues, our friends, et cetera, and thought about, you know, if this uh, potential end of the world scenario, or even if it wasn't so extreme, even if it was just, you know, the, the world encountered large amounts of annoying difficulties, uh, it's kind of this vessel in which we can think about who we turn to when events like that happen. Um, and I do think there's a lot to, to learn from it. And that this is, this is something that's been true from the start and is a big reason why we decided to make a movie on Y2K is it feels like it's this rare moment where we invested in something abstract and technical and that was not easily explained and actually managed to collaborate and get out in front of it. That being said, we quickly forgot those lessons uh, two to five days later. <laughs> um, but part of making this film is, you know, trying to kind of bring these themes and these questions back again into the cultural consciousness. Yeah, I think it's also a very interesting moment for watching the way that information is disseminated. Um, this being sort of the first crisis, global crisis of the internet age, and sort of watching how people were able to espouse their own worldview and create their own channels of media, which I think we've only gotten further and further away from some sort of centralized version of everyone watching the news every night. And of course, in the 90s, like everyone was, you know, most everyone was tuned into the same news channels. But um, I think it's, it's really particularly interesting for watching that kind of burgeon into our society. So to the puzzle piece metaphor, it's very true that it feels like a lot of jigsaw puzzles all mixed together and you have to find the right pictures you're trying to create. But where the metaphor breaks down is that it's not inherently cut out so they perfectly fit together. So in that way, it's not like a jigsaw puzzle and it's like painting a totally new picture. Um, and yeah, huge difficulty was the archival team had assembled 700 hours of archival footage. So finding what was resonating with us was most of what the edit was about, you know, finding the themes of the movie. And that takes a lot of leaving out. We had assembled 700 hours of archival footage. So finding what resonated to the story we were trying to tell was a major challenge of the edit but we knew that we wanted to sort of trace the way that Y2K entered in the world, starting with the technical problem and watching it radiate out into the uh, American consciousness. Um, Thanks, Marley. I wanna thank you both for coming on. I think this is a perfect way to close out the uh, podcast series entirely. We've covered everything from what got me involved right at the beginning, all the way to the production of your documentary, Time Bomb Y2K. And if you're still listening, hang around for a little while. We're gonna have a discussion, a little bit of a discussion about what it's like to put this type of documentary together. And then we are officially done. There is part of the podcast, which is visual. 
If you go to vimeo.com slash on demand slash Y2K, you'll have the opportunity to subscribe to the visual component of this podcast. There are a lot of interviews with Y2K luminaries that did not make it into the auditory part deliberately, and they are there in the visual part, the list I just gave you. The idea there was to provide visuals for all of the presentations, all of the podcasts that we did. Some of them need it. Some of the technical ones right at the beginning actually need the visuals, I think. The rest are there eh, just for eye candy. The, the, the interviews we have are with people who are really important. Everything from journalists who wrote about Y2K, people who didn't believe in Y2K, people who worked on Y2K, and people who were in it long before I was. So, this is the end of the Y2K part. Hang around for a little while and listen to the rest of the discussion with Marley and Brian as they discuss what it's like to create this type of documentary. Folks, I want to thank you very much for hanging around for a little while because I want to give you an opportunity to talk about what it is you do to put this type of thing together. For me, it's strange. You're, you're working with found footage. I have this image of you finding a large box with a thousand jigsaw puzzles all mixed together, reaching in, grabbing a thousand or two pieces, pulling them out and say, I'm going to use these and these alone to tell the story of all the jigsaw puzzles that were in there. How do you do that? Yeah, so I guess... I mean, I, I love this metaphor. It's, you know, our, our process is very much based on research. We, we don't have, you know, we, we'd be lying if we told you we had the most advanced understanding from living through Y2K because we weren't part of actively solving it like you were. Um, that being said, I do, due to kind of years and years of experience, I have a bunch of research finding footage that's been forgotten about, that hasn't been seen since it was aired, that's sitting in basements and closets and storage units. And so we started the project kind of with an, with an open slate. Like we didn't have um, narrative points that we, we thought we absolutely must hit or even characters, no offense to you, Peter, who, who we necessarily thought would be, you know, absolutely in the film. It was through kind of an initial period of discovering and watching that we realized, okay, there's this guy, Peter Diager. He was on the news a lot. There's John Koskinen. He was on the news. There's footage, you know, for example, the woman in our film, Candace Turner, we saw a photo of her in a newspaper with a VHS camera filming her television and thought to ourselves, I wonder if she kept all her home movies. Then you talk to Candace and she tells you, oh, there was a Swiss documentary crew who came here um, and, and filmed me back in late 1998. And so these things kind of build up and we, we use the film kind of as a means of satisfying our own interests and our own curiosities in the subject. And we fully let ourselves, you know, indulge our, indulged ourselves and, and let ourselves go down as many rabbit holes as we wanted to. They weren't always necessarily 
fruitful for the film, but sometimes deep inside one of those holes, you'll discover some absolutely incredible piece of footage that kind of blows your mind and resonates with you or feels especially relevant to the present moment. And you realize like this absolutely must be in the film. Um, that being said, when you find as many amazing clips as we did, there isn't necessarily room for them all to fit into an 80 minute movie. Not that we went into this thinking it would necessarily be a nice tight 80 minutes, but you know, we wanted it to be a feature. We didn't want it to be an eight hour series. And so that's really where kind of this interplay between the research and the editing begins. Yeah. I think the metaphor of finding a massive box that have jigsaw puzzle pieces from a lot of different puzzles is a really good metaphor. It's sort of like every piece of archival is its own, you know, puzzle. Um, and we ended up collecting like 700, about 700 hours of archival footage. So getting that down to 80 minutes, of course, is a massive challenge. And I'll say where the metaphor sort of breaks down is stitching those different jigsaw puzzles together. There is no sort of like cutout. There's no like easy, oh, that makes sense. Those just pieces fit together. It's sort of crafting your own piece um, and making sure that like what the story that you're telling is flowing, which is really hard, especially for our film, it being all archival and the amount of characters we sort of delve into their world of finding that flow and that rhythm was definitely a major challenge of the film. Um, and I would say one of the other biggest frustrations was just building a movie where the result of the conflict is known to everyone in the audience. So everyone who's sitting in a theater knows that we made it past New Year's Eve. Um, and that was a major challenge, how you can sort of ramp up this tension that was present in the 90s and was very true to the story, while a modern audience knows nothing happened. But I think that we were able to successfully do that. And part of a big part of that is through choosing to do it all archival. So people sort of feel like they are in this time capsule. They are living in this moment. And there's no one coming out from the outside, from the present day, telling them you know, what to feel. It's all just very immersive. Um, and I think one of the greatest lessons learned is just sort of the power of collaboration. And that's, you know, Brian and I's collaboration and also our collaboration with the entire team. We would be, Brian and I would be in my edit suite working on a scene and just be like, is this working? Is this not working? And then Brian would be like, let's show it to the team and getting everyone's input and just kind of constantly putting things out there and receiving feedback was such a crucial part of the process. Yeah, and I think that collaboration also extended beyond ourselves and, and our team to include, you know, you, Peter, and John Koskinen and all of these Zoom calls and phone calls uh, and emails that that we did and that we sent over the two years of making this film because we tried to incorporate what people were telling us into this movie, even if we don't include newly filmed or newly recorded interviews in the project, 
we did learn lessons from collaborating with almost everyone who appears in it, or at least people who appear for a scene's worth in the film. Um, and we learned so much from those conversations. Um, I'll also say like a, a challenge, you know, is making making sure that this film does have a point of view and that we are telling our own story, you know, in lieu of directing people on camera, it's really a question of like, you know, there's this term found footage, but in some ways that, that word doesn't feel active enough for how much work we did kind of targeting specific pieces of archival or spending weeks corresponding with historical societies and universities and filmmakers to find exactly what we wanted. Um, and, you know, it's just these choices we made in edit where we're like, okay, we, we hear from this guy, Scott, who goes off the grid and says it's going to be like the LA riots again. And we sort of want to, in some ways, call out that attitude. And so it's, you know, this choice of having a, a number of people of color speaking about Americans panicking uh, right next to it. And that kind of, you know, these, these subtle choices, we, we try to give like a, a guiding hand to take viewers through the film to allow them to, to really understand how we felt about Y2K. We didn't want it to just play like a recast news in sequence from 96 to 2000, because that would have just been boring for one. And you also, I don't think would be making new meaning from Y2K, which was a huge goal of ours. And I think we achieved it, but it's, it's a challenge when you don't have, um, you know, voices saying what you want, <laughs> you know, <laughs> voices repeating out loud the voice that's in your head or the voice that was present in our edit suite. Um, and so, you know, that was a constant challenge, but I think we succeeded largely due to Marley and our other editor, Maya, and uh, our associate editor, or our additional editor, Katie Ann Gonzalez's uh, choices in edit. Yeah, I yeah, just to add to that, the idea of keeping your own story out of the picture, I think, is one of these sort of myths built around documentary film, that that's even possible. Um, you know, every cut is a decision that someone's making, <laughs> and there's a lot of cuts in this movie. Um, but I think it's, you know, sort of treating yourself as as the editor or you know as the archival team as the first audience to what you're getting this footage and then kind of it takes this process of understanding yourself to understand what you're responding to in the footage mm -hmm. and then bringing that to the team and expressing why you think this is important so it's just so much communication and so much back and forth um, to get to the point where you have a film that feels like it is from that point of view, like Brian said. And to make sure that everyone understands the point of view that you're all working towards, um, which again goes back to sort of this team collaboration. We had a meeting every week for like three hours weekly where we would discuss what we think Y2K was about, what we're doing, what we're trying to say, new footage that we're seeing that relates to what we're trying to say, and just having that space to really communicate about making this movie was so crucial.
Yeah, we, we hope to mirror some of the end of millennium collaboration that was so successful in solving the problem within our our own team. That's great. Were there any holy grails that you just could not find? You know it's you on the, the airplane on New Year's Eve and that we, <laughs> we, we scanned your itinerary for that day and talked to every single source to ask if there was a camera there. No, there was no camera. There was no filming. There was no camera crew at all. It was the one journalist who was on with me. And we, we talked and, to that journalist. Right. And there were a handful of other people. Uh, there were people on the plane. Uh, no one was concerned. No one was uh, tense or anything. I mean, <laughs> after all, the, the this Y2K guy sitting up in business class and <laughs> champagne. He's not worried. <laughs> yeah. We want see that that what, what you just described is the holy grail. That's the holy image. grail. Yeah, uh, but. Yeah, you 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 mentioned before like that it must have been frustrating working with you because you didn't save clips, and it <laughs> truly it truly wasn't, and it was a pleasure throughout. However, we we are frustrated that you didn't take a camcorder on that flight with you because that would have been the answer to some of our problems. <laughs> Sorry about that. I just don't take selfies. I've never put a phone up and taken a selfie. Other people have done it. Look, you know, selfies have been taken of me. I, that happens all the time. But it's just something I've never done. And, you know, with 2020 hindsight, yeah, maybe I should have taken a few more clips and had people with a camera more often. But it was just something I never did. It, it wasn't about um, it wasn't about keeping a record. It was about solving the silly problem. So, yeah, it's, it's not just you. It's it's all computer programmers and people who work with computer programmers. That was a frustration as we talked to so many computer professionals, managers, programmers who worked on the problem. And we asked each one if they ever took a camera to the office. And many of them have also said they're not selfie people. Uh, <laughs> that's a, a phrase we're familiar with actually. Yeah. Uh, so we wish, yeah, I mean, we do wish computer programmers were, uh, slightly more inclined to selfie on uh, the rudimentary cameras of the late nineties, but <laughs> we managed to find enough footage of the programmers, I think, mm -hmm. to include them as an important part of the story. Yeah, it's funny because I don't think there was a day in our office when anyone brought in the camcorder to record our process. So we get it. It's not a normal thing to do. Um, but, you know, in 30 years, when someone's making a documentary about archival filmmaking and they reach out to us, we'll have the same response. <laughs> Very we good. Will, we'll have this recording. If yeah. nothing you'll, else. You'll, you'll have this one. Uh, <laughs> one last question, and then I leave you be. At the end now, it's a success. I mean, there's no doubt about it. It's gotten good coverage. It's reached about as many people as you know, we ever did during Y2K. And with getting on HBO, it's going to go even further. If you were to do it over again, is there anything significant that you'd change? Wow. Yeah. I mean, not, I think we're both 
we're not directors who after making the movie have this kind of humdrum attitude towards it where we're like, eh, it turned out pretty well. We don't, I don't regret anything in the end product. I think personally, I wish I didn't get so stressed out at certain points while making it. And um, it's only at the end that you forget about all of the the highs and lows and the general emotional roller coaster of working on something creative and collaborative for for two years. But um, as far as the the finished film, I I don't really have regrets. yeah I mean even I think for me I would say no I mean there were moments that I you know was also stressed out and you know have had behavior that I learned from though essentially and it's like every conflict and an artistic process gets you further along in making more art and getting better at making art and I think that I learned so much through this experience through all of the challenges and the difficulties and all of the successes. And yeah, I don't think I would trade any of that. You know, there's when you're deeply collaborative in a deeply collaborative relationship with a lot of people, which is really what making films is, there's always going to be something to learn about yourself during that process. And I feel really fortunate that I was able to do that with such amazing other people and such Yes, a great team. supportive people. Yeah, and everyone, you know, everyone I think on our team had a really good experience despite the fact that we were all stressed out at different points in it. When we all look back, it's not something that we are, I, I don't think there's a lot of, there's no shame, you know? We, No. we know that we were all really doing our best and that's Yeah. really, Yeah, it's all of it's all of our our favorite project. You know, we've we've all worked on lots and lots of documentaries, and I think we can safely say, not to to speak for the team, but to speak for the team a little bit because they've said this. I think it was all of our favorite film that we've we've ever worked on, both in the making of it and in the the finished film itself. Well, now I want to express my thanks. It is the most honest documentary on Y2K so far. And it, uh, it was interesting. I learned a couple of things, too. When I did this podcast, the one that folks are listening to right now, my goal was to be as objective as possible. And I realized right from the start it had to be about Y2K, and it had to be my perspective. But I wanted to keep it unbiased. I, I wanted to, I don't know, not get too upset about the other stuff that was going on, you know, the, the panic stuff and all the rest. And at the end of your documentary, I, I realized in a way I did a disservice to the listeners of this podcast because I gave them one aspect. What you've done is you've given them all aspects of Y2K. Yes, I wish you could go deeper into the technical stuff, but that's just me again. I was the technologist in all of this. I want to thank you again, sincerely, for myself and my guests from many, many, many of the IT people who are involved in Y2K. Thanks for bringing the reality to the screen, all of it, the, uh, the warts and all. And I really want to, I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, Peter. You know that means the world to us.
to have that blessing. And I'll just say that I think both records are very important. You know, both scales of the problem are important to look out from the top down like we did, but also your podcast was so important to us to really understand the technical problem. And so I think, yeah. thank you for all of that. Yeah, we, we right. still kind of can't believe we're on it after all the hours we spent listening to Listening while making the film. <laughs> well, what better way to end the podcast series? Well, this will be my final installment of that. Um, although there is something tempting coming up. I hear that you might be doing a watch party when it comes out on HBO. I hope that you'll keep in touch. And if you do go ahead with that, I'd love to be a part of that. And uh, I think we'll all have learned our lesson. We need to record it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> okay guys be all right good. thanks so much peter thanks have peter. a great holiday season great new year and all the best in future endeavors yeah happy you new too. years thank you yeah, happy new year <laughs> be Bye. good and we're done folks i want to thank you for being a part of the podcast if you've been listening in and if you've subscribed and supported it i really appreciate all the support over the years if you want to contact me i'm available on the usual places contact me on linkedin My email address is p diager d-e-j-a-g-e-r at technobility.com i'm like i said i'm on linkedin you can find me pretty much anywhere just google my name peter diager d-e space j-a-g-e-r and you'll be able to get in touch with me y2k is done for me i don't think we'll be doing any more installments on this it'd be very surprising to me if we did i hope you got something out of it i hope that you made it through and last word if you worked on y2k make it the success it was thank you you may not get the appreciation from the media and everybody else but from me you do why because without you i'd have just been that silly voice in the wind take care guys be good <laughs> have i mentioned in all our discussions how much i actually hate computers <laughs> no, I, I do. I'm not a fan. I am not a fan of these things. <laughs> I don't um, blame you. That's that's like the one current bite we needed for our film. Like no talking. Yeah. It's, it's all archival except for the one. That's just in the after the if you sit through the whole credits, you get to hear. You yeah, that, that would. Oh, that would be good. That would be good. Yeah, I know. Yeah. The Marvel closing credits gimmick. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Oh, dear Lord.